This is episode number one with the co-founder of RunGum, six-time U.S. national 800-meter champion, silver medalist at the 2013 World Championships, and two-time Olympian, the Brad Pitt of track, Nick Simmons. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. My name is Jason Fitzgerald, head coach of strengthrunning.com, and every week I'll be your personal coach, helping you discover how to reach your potential and become the runner that you know you want to be. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now it's time to get after it. My guest today needs very little introduction. He's one of the world's best middle distance runners, Mr. Nick Simmons. At Willamette University, as an undergraduate, he won seven NCAA Division III titles in outdoor track in the 800 and 1500. His collegiate personal best of 145.83 still ranks as the fastest time in Division III history. A two-time Olympian, Nick has run a blazingly fast 142.95 in the 800 meters, a 334.1500, as well as a 519 beer mile. Not sure which one is more impressive. An outspoken advocate for athletes' rights, he's on a mission to bring equality to how athletes are able to market themselves. He's also dated Paris Hilton, so I'm not surprised that he's been called the Brad Pitt of track. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Nick Simmons. All right, let's dive in, Nick. Let's start where we left off last time. And for our listeners, this is actually the second time we recorded this podcast. The first time we had a tech glitch and I had a zero second audio file after our interview but nick is back he's here thanks so much nick i think this is a real testament to how understanding you are <laughs> no problem at all <laughs> all right let yeah let's start where we left off and i think the last question i asked you last time was how excited are you for your tesla model 3 oh uh, yes the tesla um boy and elon's been in the in the news quite a bit the last couple of days talking about taking on uber and everything else he's got planned um, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I, I, you know, basically what you do is you give them a $1,000 down payment and it puts you on a list and they give you updates and, and whenever they start making the Model 3, in theory, you'd be one of the first to receive them. So uh, I like supporting Tesla. I, I believe in, in uh, electric vehicles. I think they're uh, superior in a lot of ways to gas-powered vehicles. So I, I just uh, – I'm excited. I just want to see – I want to see a – a world where we're not burning dinosaurs to get from point A to point B anymore. Burning dinosaurs. That's a great way to <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have my eyes on a on a Model S, but I might need mm -hmm. a couple more dollar bills in my in my piggy bank. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, we know but we need the we we I love their model, the top down model where, you know, they, they prove that they can create a, a supercar first and then uh, you know, a luxury sedan and then the everyman vehicle and, and the model three and I'm not the I'm obviously not the first person to say this, but being able to bring that that thirty thousand dollar vehicle to market—that's what's really going to allow Tesla to uh, to make this a, um, a sustainable company that uh, you know that that uh, can operate in the black. Yeah, you know, you said they were in the news recently, and the GM—it uh, was an executive previously from GM, and he was railing on Tesla because they're so far unprofitable. But yeah, you know, I think you have to give the the newest car company in the last hundred years or so, a little bit of leeway when it comes to scale. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and you got to think of, you really got to think of Tesla as a tech company, not as a, as a auto manufacturer. I mean, they do make cars, but really they operate much, much more 
similarly to a tech company. And I, I could list off a, of, you know, a dozen tech companies that weren't profitable for many years before they, they finally turned a profit. So, uh, I, I, I think that he, uh, I think that he's going to be just fine. I was thinking I, I want him to focus on, on SpaceX more though. You know, I, I'm more excited about, uh, the potential of humans going to Mars, I think, than anything. Although, you know, I do obviously believe that we need to fix some of our problems here on Earth and not look at Mars as a bailout. But I don't yeah. know. I just get excited. I get excited about humans doing things that humans have never done before. You know, whether it's uh, setting a new world record on the track or visiting a place outside of our our solar system or our planet that we've never visited. Anytime humans push that limit, uh, it just it gets my adrenaline going. Have you read the Elon Musk biography by uh, I believe it was Ashley Vance? Yes, I have. It's fantastic. And uh, for a guy who's fairly private to to allow someone uh, like Vance to shadow him for a year and tell you know his story in such depth, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I read the book. I'll definitely recommend it for anybody listening who's interested in the same idea. You know, humans doing crazy things that we've never done before. Uh, and and I love that you enjoy seeing that, whether that's a world record on the track, whether that's going to Mars or you know, building uh, the best car that's ever been built, and it just happens to be electric. Yeah. All right, let's talk more about running. We're not here to talk sure. about Elon Musk. <laughs> I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> so you you have kind of an interesting origin story. You're one of very few uh, elite runners, and, and might I say a really top-tier elite runner, who has a Division III uh, college-level running background. How did you... But before even that happened, how did you first get into running as, say, a kid? Well, you know, it really came down to the fact that I was a late bloomer. And I've, I've kind of been a late bloomer throughout my entire life. So when I started high school, I was five foot tall, 90 pounds. And I was the smallest male or female in my high school class. And I'd grown up playing soccer and ice hockey. And those are the sports I wanted to play in high school. The soccer and ice hockey coaches looked at me and shook their head and said, "There's no way we could put you on the on the playing field. You'll be murdered." <laughs> you know, there are, there were there were full grown men playing high school sports and and letting a you know a, a child on the field with them was just not an option. So they said, "Go out for cross country. No one's going to hit you out there. You can develop your cardiovascular system, and you'll be better for it when you start going through puberty." Um, and so I did, and I really didn't like distance running at the time. I it was kind of like uh, I felt like it was punishment, you know, like, well, you know, I'm just doing this so that I can be better at the sports I really want to play. And, and I liked some aspects of it. I loved that practices were co-ed. I loved that we got to blow off some steam after school. Uh, I love traveling around the state of Idaho and seeing beautiful places. Um, but the, the just slogging in miles day in and day out was, was not that fun. But I love the camaraderie, and so I kept at it. I, and I was pretty successful that freshman year. I, you know, was on varsity, and and though I didn't run track in the spring, I ended up playing club ball in the spring soccer. Uh, I, I did come back and, and run track for the first year in 2000. Well, gosh, this was before 2000. This was 1999, and uh, and had a lot of success on the track as a sophomore. Yeah, it's so funny hearing you say all that because. Uh... You know, I was a basketball player, and you know, I'm now five foot seven. And when I was a freshman, I was, you know, probably five one and about a hundred mm-hmm. pounds, just about like you were. And I had to quickly realize that my basketball dreams were going down the drain very quickly. 
And well, uh, it's so funny, you know. Uh, I think I think one of the things I love most about track and field is that there's an event for everybody. There is an event for every body type, whether you're five feet ninety pounds like I was, or whether you're three hundred pounds and you're throwing a discus or a shot. There, there is. Uh, truly an event for everybody. And I think that that's why so many kids gravitate towards track uh, in high school. It's one of the most participated sports, if not the most participated sport in high school athletics. Uh, and, and even in college, there's a program for everybody and an event for everybody. And that's one of the things I love most about track and field. Yeah, I've always loved the fact that it's completely objective. You know, you can't, at the end of a meet, you can't say that, oh, well, Johnny never passed me the ball or coach never put me in the game. You yeah. Know, when you run a race or you throw the shot put, you either perform at a certain level or you don't. And it's very objective. There's no rules, uh, no opportunity for just subjectivity. And well, that, and that's that that's what kept me coming back early on. You know, as, as one of the smaller kids on the soccer pitch, I didn't get a ton of playing time. And so here I am putting in all the hard work and I don't even get to play, you know, as many minutes as everybody else. And and then on the cross country course, everyone gets the same amount of time. Uh, everybody, you know, goes out and has the same opportunities. Uh, and, and my hard work paid me dividends. You know, I was there as, as an equal member of a team, not some guy sitting on a bench, you know, hoping that coach puts him in for five minutes. Uh, call it selfish, you know, call it what you, what you want. But I like the individual aspect of track and field that my hard work will pay me dividends. And, and that success early on is what kept me coming back, wanting wanting more, wanting to see how good I could get uh, and see how fast I could run ultimately. Yeah, that resonates pretty strongly with me at least. Um, now, before you even started running, before high school, uh, you were still really big into the outdoors. What was your kind of athletic background like before you started running? Yeah, and even all through running, you know, being connected to the outdoors, being outside, that's kind of always been who I am. Running was something that I that I did. I've never I've tried to never identify as a runner. Um, it is something I love. It's something I do, but it's not who I am. And if I were to say, you know, who I am, who Nick Simmons is as a person, he's he's a guy that loves the outdoors first and foremost. And I was an Eagle Scout uh, in Troop 94 in Boise, Idaho. My dad gave me a, a real love for the outdoors from an early age, and you know, from the day we were born. Uh, my dad was throwing up my sister and I in, in uh, you know, the truck and we were driving all over the U.S. to explore the national parks. Uh, I grew up hiking, fishing, surfing, snowboarding, skiing, you name it. Every single weekend we were out doing something. And you know, I think uh, I'm not a I'm not a hugely religious person, but I'm an extremely spiritual por- person. And uh, when I'm outdoors, I feel grounded and connected to something bigger than myself. And to this day, I try to get out every weekend and, and do something active. Uh, you know, I'm blessed to live in the Pacific Northwest. We have so many opportunities to get out and play, uh, whether it's climbing, skiing, you know, you name it. And I think that running, uh, in many ways, you know, was, was an extension of that. I lived at this, uh, the outskirts of Boise, Idaho, near the Ridge to River trail system and getting out after school, having been, you know, st- stuck in a, you know, stinky high school and I'm just exploring these beautiful trails, you know, that was, that wasn't so bad. Even though I didn't love running intervals, I sure loved an hour easy run in the hills. Yeah. Trail, there's nothing, nothing beats some good trail running out in the mountains or foothills somewhere. It's just gorgeous. 
Um, now, you said you when you started running, you were a freshman in high school, you were on varsity, and then you started having some real success uh, in 1999, your sophomore year. Um, how, how soon after you started do you realize you had some real talent that you could maybe do something with? Well, you know, in Idaho, it's not a, it's not running capital of the United States. I was winning state titles uh, as early as my junior year. I went on to win nine state titles in Idaho, but these the times that I was winning in weren't you know competitive with California times or uh, Florida or Texas. You know, some of the times I was winning titles in wouldn't even get me into the finals of those state championships in the bigger states. So a lot of D1 programs weren't looking at me. You know, in fact, I wasn't even offered a, a college scholarship of any kind athletically. Um, so I knew I was good for Idaho, but I didn't know what that meant, you know, across the United States. And this was long before flow track and, and runner space. I didn't really have any way to compare myself with, with the rest of the nation. So I just ran and tried to win state titles. And I, I guess I never envisioned myself running professionally. I thought I'll go on to go to a university to study which is what I really want to do is become a doctor and I'll run because I like, I like, you know, having something to do after school. So I went to Willamette university, uh, in 2002 and was there to be a student athlete. And most, I think a lot of programs have their kids there to be athlete students, but truly my emphasis was on studying. And, uh, that's what I, that's what I really focused on my first three years of Willamette. Yeah. Now, Looking back on it, would you maybe have done anything differently knowing what you now know? I think that if I'd grown up a decade later in, in the, you know, the Internet era and could see what everyone else was doing and could you know, email coaches and, and be more involved in the recruiting process, yeah, absolutely. I think I would have run faster in high school. I think I would have ended up at a D1 program, probably with a scholarship, um, and – and who knows after that, you know, I, I don't like to think about hypotheticals. What if I had done that? Or what if, you know, this had gone this way? What I know is that at the age of 32, I've been blessed to run professionally for 10 years. Uh, I, I've had a mentor that I met the, the day I arrived at Willamette's campus in Sam LaPrey. And without him, I don't, I don't think I would have gotten this far. So I'm extremely happy with, with my career. Um, I'm extremely happy to, to be a two-time Olympian and a six-time U.S. champion, and and it's kind of scary to think what would happen if I, if anything had gone a different way. You know, I, I I honestly, it's the path to becoming an Olympian is so hard, and being an Olympian is such a rare thing. And there's so many people involved in, in the making of an Olympian. You know, if I hadn't gone to Willamette and never met Coach Sam, I honestly don't think I'd be an Olympian today. So I, I'm pleased with the path that I chose. Uh, it, it was an expensive path, you know, paying for my education. My, I, was, I was really fortunate that my parents helped me out. But, uh, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know if I'd recommend uh, the D3 route to, to every youth. But for me, it ended up working out real well. Yeah, it's always hard to look back on your path to where you are now and wish it was different if if you're ultimately kind of where you want to be right now. I mean, you've obviously had – you know, so many professional successes on the track and, you know, you've started RunGum. Uh, now you've, you've moved into the CEO role. And, you know, if you didn't meet your, your mentor or your business partner, who knows if that would have happened. So it's, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, shoot yourself in the foot and say you wish things would have been different. Yeah, I think I was stubborn enough 
that I would have just continued on the path to becoming a doctor. And I don't know if being, if medicine would have made me happy. Um, you know, I, I'm so grateful to have found entrepreneurial business. It, 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 I wake up every morning and I'm just like so excited to work on my business uh, with my my best friend, Coach Sam. And you know, I don't know if I would have felt the same way about medicine. Medicine's changed a lot since my dad was a doctor, and and uh, it's it's kind of a messed up system right now. And as you know, I don't like messed up systems. I, I've been railing against the powers that be in, in track and field because it's so damn messed up for the last 10 years. But uh, I, what I love about entrepreneurial business is that uh, same thing that I loved about track and field from an early age. My hard work pays me dividends. I'm not working for a guy you know, who's, who's forcing me to come in and work from a nine-to-five, and, and I'm not working to enrich his life. I'm working to enrich my life and make my family's life better. Uh, I wake up at 6 a.m. and I work until 6 p.m. and I'm logging 12-hour days, but I know that my hard work is going to pay me dividends, and I love that about it. Yeah, I mean you're you're preaching the choir right now. That's exactly how I feel. It's an incredible feeling to have a little bit more control over your life and uh, to do something that you're personally really passionate about. Uh, yeah, and it's scary. In. I mean, it's definitely scary. The buck stops with me, you know. And if if run gum fails, then I have no one to blame but myself. And there are days where I, that terrifies me, but it it also makes me feel something. It makes me passionate and excited and scared. And I like those feelings. Yeah. Let's, let's talk more about run gum. You sure in 2014, you co-founded run gum with your coach, Sam LaPrey. And, uh, I've been a customer. I can't say no to caffeinated gum. Giddy up. <laughs> now, how did the idea actually start and, and then evolve over time? Yeah, it was really a product born out of necessity. Uh, coach Sam and I were looking for legal stimulants that would give us a slight advantage over our competition. And, you know, I, like I had said at Willamette, I studied biochemistry and I knew what I wanted. I wanted caffeine and taurine and B vitamins. You know, and these are often found in energy drinks. And so I'd drink an energy drink, you know, half an hour before a workout or a race, and I would feel this sense of increased energy and focus, but my stomach would just be in knots. Uh, the heavy, acidic liquid sloshing around in my stomach as I was trying to run was just horrible. And more often than not, after a race or a workout, I would end up, you know, hunched over a garbage can throwing up the energy drink. It just seemed like such a stupid way to get stimulants when I knew you could absorb them sublingually, you know, much the way that Nicorette uh, puts nicotine into their chewing gum. I knew that functional chewing gum was a better delivery vehicle than, than a liquid would be. So we took everything that's in an energy drink, uh, the caffeine, the taurine, and the B vitamins, and we infuse those stimulants into two pieces of chewing gum, and we call that run gum. It, uh, it's, it's fantastic product in that it's lightweight, uh, it's sugar-free, it's zero calories. You chew it for you know five to ten minutes, and you absorb all the active ingredients. You spit it out, and, and your performance is enhanced. Caffeine's been shown to have up to a three percent uh, enhancement in endurance athletics, which is phenomenal. <laughs> Uh, I, maybe three percent doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a very, very significant uh, increase. If you're talking about the 800 meters, that might be as much as three seconds. So yeah, uh, I'll, I'll I mean, jump in a, here. And, yeah, yeah, please. And just say three percent doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but you know, let's if if you're running a 60 minute 10k, for example, you're a recreational athlete. Three uh, percent of that is about roughly. 
it is over two minutes. And so it's that's fantastic. a two-minute two yeah. improvement in your 10K time. And I'm, and, and I'm talking about a dollar fifty for a packet of run gum. It's not like you're spending thousands of dollars for your your three percent increase. You're paying a buck fifty. It's it's <laughs> it's a uh, it's a no brainer, I think. And so many people who have had great experiences with run gum, who have set personal bests, or in some cases who have won Olympic medals chewing run gum, uh, they realize that what I'm saying is truth. They're realizing that the science backs up our claims, and and you know, they're hooked. They believe that we have created a, a superior product. Uh, I, I consider energy shots and energy drinks direct competitors to run gum. Uh, and I think what, even coffee is a direct competitor. But what all these companies have in common is they all want their consumers to drink something. But I don't know about you. When I want energy, I just want energy. I'm not thirsty. I don't want to drink anything. I just want the stimulants. And so that's that's where run gum is different and and where so many people have come to appreciate that difference uh and and have supported us in the last two years we launched in october of 2014 and you know as people come to realize the benefits of functional chewing gum uh run gum is growing in an incredible rate yeah and i'm actually very surprised at people who are not aware of the power of caffeine on endurance performance it's one of the most studied drugs on the planet and there is such a clear and very compelling case for using caffeine before, uh, you know, a- any endurance event, really. I mean, Nick, you're primarily an 800-meter runner. Uh, I'm sure you use run gum before you, you race 800 meters, but it's also uh, just as beneficial for endurance events like the half marathon or, or even the marathon, too. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's kind of been the biggest challenge, I suppose, for run gum is just – pointing out that the science backs up the fact that, that caffeine does have performance-enhancing effects. And, you know, Wall Street Journal did an article right before the Olympic Games uh, talking about the science of it and talking about all the products that that are marketed towards athletes, whether it's Red Bull being marketed towards extreme athletes or Run Gum being marketed towards endurance athletes. Uh, this, the science is, is very clear on the fact that caffeine can, can enhance your performance. And uh, another study I saw estimated that I think it was 80 or 90 percent of Olympians use caffeine in one way or another to enhance their performance uh, during competition. So, I mean, uh, it, it's really, really uh, an incredible drug. I'm not going to pretend that caffeine isn't a drug. It's, it's a powerful drug and in, used in the right way can, can be very beneficial. But not just uh, not just to skydivers and BMXers or to marathoners and steeplechasers. You know, we find that people utilize run gum in, in all manners. So whether you're there, you know, truckers driving overnight or uh, a lawyer running into a last minute meeting, a nurse working a 24 hour shift. Uh, and we even have a, a sled dog racer up in Wasilla, Alaska, that likes to use run gum because energy drinks freeze overnight up there, whereas run gum doesn't freeze. So the benefits of using run gum are, are numerous. And uh, it's been really exciting for us as a small business to see how people find an application for run gum in their daily lives. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to say that uh, I not only have used it before running, but before an interview like this one, mm-hmm. or if I have to write uh, a little bit of caffeine or run gum is a great aid for that. And Definitely. You know, from the, you know, on the exercise side of things, 
you know, if anyone's curious, you know, I think the two main benefits of caffeine for endurance performance is that number one, it kind of blunts your perception of race related pain and fatigue. So, uh, you will actually have a lower rating of perceived effort. So you're theoretically going to be able to push yourself a little bit harder, uh, in a workout or race situation. And then the other, uh, really interesting study I saw was, uh, you know, they hooked up, uh, a, an individual's muscles to, um, you know, an electronic stim machine and they put some, uh, you know, electricity into their muscles and those who were caffeinated, their muscles, uh, who, which were contracting involuntarily actually contracted, uh, more strongly than the, than really? those test subjects that didn't have any caffeine. So it actually fundamentally changes how muscles contract, which obviously has some clear implications for running. Fantastic. I haven't seen that study, but that's a great one. Uh, now I, uh, I think that people, when they, when they try it and they utilize it in, in practice or in a race, there is that, there is a very perceivable benefit. And it's one of the reasons why people who buy run gum and use run gum come back and buy it again. You know, overwhelmingly they do, uh, they come back and use it again. Um, but <laughs> the science when you talk about measurable statistics, not just a feeling, um, that's what gets me so excited. This is this is uh, this is a performance enhancing drug. It is one of the few legal performance enhancing drugs, uh, and I really think that uh, that everybody can find a flavor that they like. We have three different SKUs, uh, stock keeping units: mint, fruit, and cinnamon. And we're working on a couple new products for 2017. You can buy these at uh, Amazon. You can buy them at RunGum.com. And if you visit RunGum.com, along with a lot of different uh, training tips and uh, blogs and, and other resources for athletes, there is a map of all the retailers throughout the United States that uh, that carries RunGum. We're in over 300 retailers throughout the United States, so there's likely to be a store near you. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about where you guys might be going in the next, you know, maybe mid to long term, you know, five to ten years. Are you planning more uh, different kinds of SKUs at this point or, or even different delivery mechanisms for similar ingredients? I think that's a uh, – first of all, that's a great question, and it's something that we think about a lot. And as a startup, you know, where you're headed can change from one minute to the next depending on cash flow, depending on – uh, economic situations. Uh, you know, Coach Sam and I always believed that this was the future of the energy market. That run gum is is the future. That people are tired of drinking sugary, calorie rich, nasty energy drinks. That they don't like energy shots for the same reason. That they really just want their energy and they're not thirsty. And, and as people realize that about themselves, they're going to naturally gravitate towards run gum. So I don't see any reason why run gum. Uh, couldn't be as big as a five-hour energy or as big as a Red Bull. If if our execution is is great, um, as great as our as our idea, then I think that the the sky's the limits for Run Gum. But you know, I, I really believe that an idea is only ten percent uh, of a business. Execution is ninety percent. And given that Sam and I, um, you know, are learning consumer goods for the first time. We've wanted to grow slowly and steadily initially as, as we test different concepts and, uh, you know, as we learn, we learn about our business. And so for the last two years, it was really about testing the concept and 
we we found that people r- love run gum that that this is a fantastic concept that the science backs us up and and uh, we were really lucky to have not lucky but we worked hard for it we were really fortunate to have two great years of sales and now we're doubling down on that concept and and I've switched from a co-founder role to a CEO role my business partner Sam is the CFO because he has a, a background in finance and the sky's the limit. It, it, we're, we've just hired two, two new people and, uh, we still, Sam and I still own a hundred percent of the company. So there is a lot of room for, uh, investor, um, for VC money if we decide to take on the VC, but it's just fun. I mean, I really feel excited every morning when we wake up. This is, it's such a fun business. It's something we're really passionate about and we're going to continue to grow run gum uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, it's an exciting time in your life. It's a whole new chapter as you're transitioning into that CEO role. And I want to talk about a different chapter in your life. This was when you first signed with Nike in 2007. You moved to Eugene. And, uh, you know, I think to every kid who grew up loving track and field, this this must have felt like hitting the lottery. You're, you're a pro athlete. You're sponsored by Nike. You're training in Tracktown, USA. Walk us through what you were feeling at that time. Like, what 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 was going through your head when you first moved to Eugene in 2007? Yeah, I felt like I was on the right path. If that makes sense, you know, I I had put off the medical school plan for a couple of years to train for the 2008 Olympic Games, and I guess I felt like, you know, if you're going to do something, do it all the way. And if you're, you know, by going to Eugene, by training full-time and not having a part-time job uh, by really investing every bit of my being into trying to become the best runner I could be. I felt like I was giving myself a fair shot. Uh, Coming from a D3 program where we had to buy our own warm-ups and turn in our jerseys at the end of the year to go to Eugene, Oregon, where Nike's sending me thousands of dollars a year for free, and I have University of Oregon's resources and Coach Gagliano one of the most accomplished middle distance coaches in the United States is, is writing my workouts. You know, I woke up each morning and I thought to myself, I have absolutely zero excuses not to run well. Uh, and I, I approached every single race that way. Like I was just so lucky and so fortunate to have these resources that a lot of people didn't have that I was going to make the most out of that opportunity. And I did. I made the world team in 2007 and then the Olympic team in 2008 and set PRs uh, nearly every year for almost a decade. Yeah, you went from running, I believe it was 145 in high school. Now your PR is 142.95, which to us mere mortals is kind of mind-boggling. And, you know, aside from the times, I mean, you've you've done so much. Two-time Olympian, you've run, uh, I believe now it's the fourth fastest 800-meter time by an American in history. Um, you know, as you look back on your career, Nick, what are, what are some of the – two to three of your your favorite memories that you think you'll always come back to yeah uh and the progression was about a 153 in high school 145 in college and and now 142 as a pro um and the times are great you know i i think i've always loved prove doing something that i'd never done before so anytime you set a pr there's that real moment of euphoria uh but at the end of the day racing is about winning it's not about racing a clock it's about looking at to your left and right and uh seeing some talented guys and trying to beat them on on the track so for me always the the biggest moments were the the wins and 
uh, I think the biggest win of all for me that will always be the most memorable race for me was the 2008 Olympic trials, you know, and for better, for worse in America, there are, there are two camps of athletes. There's those that may have made an Olympic team and there's those that haven't. And you really don't get the, the, res- the athletes don't get the respect that they deserve until they've punched that ticket onto an Olympic team. And I know athletes that are considerably more talented and more dedicated than I am, you know, that never made it onto an Olympic team due to injury or, or timing. And, uh, and it's just a shame that in our, society we put such an emphasis on on one race that happens every four years but uh, i wanted that i wanted that title next to my name and in 2008 winning the olympic trials punching that ticket earning that title it really validated and reinforced that i was on the right path that what i was doing uh made sense making the sacrifices uh was worth it now i'm sure after you qualified for your first olympics there was there was either a, a phone call home or there was a jogging over to your family. What was that like? At the trials? Yeah. Well, they were all there. So I crossed the finish line and, and threw up my arms and congratulated Andrew Weedy and Christian Smith, who had made the team with me. And and probably the best 10, 15 minutes of my life was doing that victory lap around Hayward Field. And you know, it was like everyone who had ever been important to me in my life from coach Sam to my mom and dad, Frank Egliano. I mean, everybody who mattered was there and I got a chance to hug them and thank them and tell them I love them. And, uh, it's just a, it's a really incredible moment. And I'm glad I was, I'm glad I decided to take the chance and invest everything I had in making that team because even to this day, and I've, I've won numerous U S titles. I've, I've gone on to run faster and in bigger stages, but that day to this day is probably the best day of my life. Oh, that's an incredible story. Uh, and I think anyone who's who's set a big PR and had their family there at the finish line or some close friends and, you know, maybe it was a big stage, maybe it was on Boylston Street at the Boston Marathon, you know, they've they've had a taste of what, um, you know, that kind of success can can feel like and you're absolutely right there's no feeling in the world like running an excellent race competing well and then you know having uh be recognized for that by your close family and friends yeah it's just it's incredible so nick i want to talk about the the ioc the international olympic committee uh and you've you've been pretty vocal about your opposition to Rule 40. Um, can you can you give our listeners a little rundown on on what Rule 40 is and your stance on that? Yeah, essentially, Rule 40 is a five week blackout period during the Olympic Games where athletes are not permitted freedom of speech. They're not allowed to mention their sponsors on social media. They're not allowed to wear their sponsors' logos in a lot of places. Um, it's, it's a, it's the Super Bowl of track and field or the Super Bowl of many different sports. And athletes aren't allowed to thank the sponsors that got them there. So for example, Brooks running is my sponsor. And had I made the 2016 Olympic team, uh, for fi- for a five week period on my, my own social media channels, I wouldn't be able to say something like Brooks, thank you for supporting me for the last three years uh, on my road to Rio. Uh, I would be kicked out of the village for saying something like that. Again, it violates my freedom of speech uh, that the IOC doesn't seem to care about. It makes it almost impossible for athletes to raise funds uh, because, you know, and, and, and I'm talking as a, as a 
owner of a company that wants to sponsor athletes. I, I, Rungum has a, a, a great marketing budget. We'd love to sponsor athletes, but where is where is the return on investment if we spend you know money to sponsor an athlete for four years to get them onto the Tokyo 2020 team, and once they're out there, they can't even mention my company by name. Tell me why? Where's the incentive for Rungum to sponsor athletes at that point? Is that similar to any other sports? Is there any scenario in another sport where something like this no, exists? No, it's, it's, it's unique. It's totally unique to the IOC. And the greedy assholes out there uh, in Switzerland that control the entire Olympic movement, uh, they're going to have to understand that this, this, this may have been a practice that was acceptable in the mid-1990s, or sorry, 1900s, when athletes had to be amateurs to compete at the Olympic Games, but that's not the case anymore. Pros have made the Olympic movement what it is today. It is a giant commercial in many ways, and if you're going to allow pros to compete, allow them to bring their audiences or their fans and increase revenue to, I believe it was $4 billion in 2016, then you're going to have to start compensating the pros and sharing that revenue directly with them or at least allow them to uh, to mention their sponsors and to fund their dreams that way. Yeah, I think it's interesting. In the NFL, in the NBA, these rules are uh, non-existent. You know, you can uh, have different sponsors for different athletes on an NFL or NBA team, for example, and at no point are you required to, uh, you know, basically disavow them and not talk about them at all. Yeah, I, I will say the one difference is that in many leagues in America, MLB or NFL, those athletes are employees. They are employed by the team. And when you're an employee, uh, your employer can make a lot of different demands in what you wear and, and where you have to be. But Olympic athletes are not employees. I'm not an employee of Brooks Running. I'm not an employee of USATF. I'm not an employee of, of USOC. I am an independent contractor and if you are going to allow me to be an independent contractor and not give me the benefits that come with being an employee, then you better respect the rights that I have as an independent contractor. And the IOC and USOC don't respect those rights. And in many times, in, in some cases, they violate my, my rights as a U.S. citizen, you know, as a businessman. And that's why Rungum has brought a, an antitrust lawsuit against USOC and USATF. We believe that their practices at the two, at the, at the Olympic trials, uh, violate u.s antitrust law now the the lawsuit that you guys brought uh was initially dismissed if i'm not mistaken but you're appealing that is that correct we have appealed yeah so uh we filed a, the court in the case in federal court it was dismissed on the idea that congress in 1978 gave uh the usoc implied immunity to antitrust law now in 1978, athletes had to be amateurs to participate in the Olympic Games. In fact, the piece of legislation that governs uh, the athletes is called the Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act. And it's so ludicrous that our professional sport uh, – and I use the term professional loosely because it's very much in many ways not a professional sport uh, – is, is governed by this an antiquated piece of legislation. So we have appealed, uh, and we're excited for our day uh, in the appellate court to, to let them know, hey, yes, Congress implied immunity when this was an amateur event, but there's no way that Congress could have understood 
what this would become 40 years later, how the USOC and USATF would, you know, collude to restrict businesses like my own, like Rungum, from being uh, a sponsor of these now professional athletes. Now, can you go into a little bit, why would the IOC prohibit athletes from mentioning their sponsors, either verbally or on social media or otherwise? Is What's the rationale behind that? The powers that be that govern track and field want every single marketing dollar to pass through them first. So the IOC, USOC, they say, well, if Nick Simmons is running around thanking Rungum, then we can't get money or we're our, the companies that invest in us, you know, another energy company perhaps, will be less inclined to give them massive amounts of money, uh, which is just absurd. You know, it's just so stupid. Uh, USOC or USATF recently lifted their their uh, restrictions on logos um, because we threatened them with an antitrust lawsuit. But they re- lifted their restrictions on antitrust or on, on logos and. They have raised more money since doing so than ever before, and they pat themselves on the back daily saying, well, we were raising so much money, but the logo restrictions are – it's a free-for-all, you know, and so it's been proven. It's been shown uh, in practice that you don't have to have absolute control over every square inch to still be able to raise funds. Uh, The IOC is – and the USOC for that matter are living uh, in – uh, the the century past. They need to join us in the 21st century. Now, speaking of logos, you did something interesting with space on your own body, and you auctioned it off to the highest bidder. <laughs> Can you tell that story? Yeah, in 2012, I just wanted to raise awareness to what was going on here, that uh, there's, there's so many companies that want to invest in professional athletes, in particular track and field athletes, but they're not going to if they can't ever attach their logo to the, to the athlete. And so in 2012, I put up my left shoulder for auction on eBay, and the winning bid was, bidder was Hanson Dodge Creative, a marketing company out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And their bid of $11,100 won that space. And they did it knowing that I was going to have to tape over the logo. But their, their plan was to create content and tell this story and tell this the injustices of track and field, and that's where they were going to receive their return on investment. And uh, I did look absurd running around with a piece of tape on my arm. The IOC and USOC forced me to tape over this logo. Uh, but it, it, it achieved our goal, Hanson Dodger's goal and my goal of, of raising awareness to the fact that, uh, you know, 50% of professional track and field athletes live below the poverty line. That's just an, an, un, it's an unacceptable statistic. Yeah, I think any elite athlete should be compensated um, at at you know a very high level because they're performing at a very high level. Um, and what's interesting about you having the Hanson Dodge Creative logo on your arm is that even though you did have to tape it over and nobody could actually see it, it created so much media attention that you know they, they got they got their exposure one way or the other. And I think that's a great example of working around the system to bring awareness to something that you care a lot about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Nick, what's next for you? You've got so many things going on. Um, you're you're a beer drinker, which I love. You're a mountain guy. Uh, what's next for you in terms of your athletic pursuits? Well, I, I'm working with Brooks Running right now and, and training 
with the Brooks Beast Track Club. I think I will um, I will compete in the 2017 outdoor season. I'd like to make one more world team, and this year it would be in London, uh, London 2017. I'd like to make one more Team USA and and then move into the mountains. And I set up two goals when I was 10 years old to run in the Olympic Games and to climb the Seven Summits, the tallest mountain on every continent. And I've competed in two Olympic Games, and I think I need to go back and revisit the goal I set for myself uh, in the mountains. And I've been hitting summits here in the Pacific Northwest and trying to learn everything that I can and ultimately move up to some some bigger and tougher challenges in the mountains. Did You, you took a mountaineering course recently, didn't you? I did, yeah, on Mount Baker. Yeah, how was that? I've, I've always been interested in kind of the more technical aspects of, of summiting mountains. It is, it is one of these things where there's so much knowledge that one can learn. And, you know, just like a, a guy going out and in running a hundred meters in trainers is so much different than the way Usain Bolt runs a hundred meters. You know, that's kind of how I feel starting out in the mountains. I'm, I'm learning so much and there's so much knowledge that, that I still need to, to have. So I took the six day mountaineering course in Mount Baker. Uh, it was my first time on a glacier and, you know, it was, it's, it's, uh, I feel like such a novice, you know, and I'm coming from a world where I was an expert in track and field and now in the mountains, you know, I'm back to square one and learning everything that I need to know to not kill myself on these mountains. <laughs> and it's exciting. It's new. It's a it's a fun challenge. And I think that it's it's one of those goals. It's a lifetime goal. I'm not trying to climb Everest tomorrow. I'm trying to learn the skills that I need and, and gain the fitness so that seven to ten years from now I can climb Mount Everest. I think that that mentality can be applied to almost everything in life. Uh well done. Um, Thank now, you. One other question about your 2017. You think you're going to make another go at the beer mile? I know you've run 519, and uh, that is is fairly competitive. Uh, I'd love to see you flirt with the five-minute mark. Yeah, I, I'm at a point in my life where I like to sip my beers rather than chug them. So <laughs> I love watching beer miles. I'm glad I was able to run a 519, but I, I think my beer miling days are over. Yeah, I, th I think I said that at the end of my college career. Yeah. All right, Nick, uh, this has been really fantastic. I loved hearing more about uh, the origins of Run Gum and your running career and, and where everything might be going in the next couple of years. Uh, and if people want to follow your journey, where can they find out more about you uh, and your training? Yeah, I'm on social media, uh, at Nick Simmons, N-I-C-K-S-Y-M-M-O-N-D-S. -M -M I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, RunGum is even more active than I am, uh, at RunGum across all social media channels. And I post, you know, blogs and training tips, Q's and A's to RunGum.com. There are so many resources for athletes there, not just performance-enhancing gum, but a lot of uh, a lot of content to inspire people to make the best uh, of each day and and to be great runners, great athletes in general. Yeah, and and you know I'm a, I'm a big training geek. I've I just will, will read running training books for fun. And what I'll recommend to our listeners is to go to the Run Gum blog and check out your um, your 2012 daily training journal, which you have. Uh, it's it's available for free. You can just download it uh, from the website and. It basically goes into how you trained before uh, those Olympic Games, and uh, I, I think that's an incredible resource for people. I know that, um, you know, as I was reading through it, I, 
was just interested in, in seeing the workouts, but really, you know, when it, at the very beginning, you were not in great shape. You were uh, just coming back from some downtime and seeing how an Olympic caliber athlete goes from, you know, downtime to competing at the highest levels is a really interesting transition. Yeah, I don't think people really understand the extreme periodization that uh, an Olympian goes through. Uh, I, I struggle to run nine-minute miles when I first come back from my break, but nine months later, I'm in you know 142 shape. And in that training log, you can see the the, uh, the periodization, the transition from over overweight, out of shape, you know, fall training to lean, mean running machine that takes place in the summers. And you can't you can't grind for 10, 11 months straight. You have to have that periodization. So it's a great resource. Uh, it's something I had just sitting on my hard drive, and I wanted to share it with the world. So you can go to RunGum.com and download my 2012 training log absolutely free. Yeah, and the great thing is you can also see when Nick was too hungover to run. <laughs> there was a couple times back then. <laughs> All right, Nick. Well, thank you so much. This was great. And for our listeners, uh, there's going to be some extra resources, and I'll link to uh, the training journal and the other things that we mentioned here in the podcast on the blog post on strength running. So, Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. And there we have it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nick Simmons. Like I mentioned briefly before, I'm putting together a list of resources and you know different links and notes from this show on the Strength Running blog. So if you go to strengthrunning.com slash podcast, you'll see all of our episodes and you'll be able to get the extra goodies that way. And before you go, I'd like to ask for a small favor. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you'd like to see me talk to more guests like Nick or other leaders in the world of running, then it would be incredible if you gave the Strength Running Podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Also, leave some feedback. This is a learning process for me, and only with your help can I make this show as great as I know it can be. Thanks again for tuning in, for subscribing and leaving a review. It means a lot to me, and I can't wait to share the next episode with you. 